Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. As we have already seen and heard together, today the church celebrates Epiphany. Epiphany means to make known or to reveal. And today we're going to be looking at the familiar story of the Magi whom God invites to come and worship Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's also printed in your order of worship. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose and came to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was, was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship, come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for gathering us together this morning on this Epiphany Sunday. We ask that you would, you would make known, you would reveal the good news of great joy that is for all the people, for people like us, who as the Apostle Peter says, once we were not a people, but now we are your people. And may we draw near to Jesus, who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I'm sure uh, we've all had the experience of receiving a text or a email that is difficult to make sense of. Unfortunately, I was the sender of one of those texts uh, not too long ago when I was selling one of my kids' bikes on Facebook Marketplace. Now, I had a very pleasant text exchange with the buyer, and she was on our way to our house to pick up the bike as I was driving home from work. But a few blocks from our house, uh, something pretty scary happened. An oncoming truck swerved into my lane, almost hitting me and a biker who was riding his bike alongside of me head on. And I'm not proud of this, but before I knew it, some salty words came out of my mouth. Now I'm even sorrier to say that as I finished yelling at the driver, I heard a little beep and realized that Siri had been activated. Now, I don't know how this happened, but Siri very accurately recorded what I said and sent it to the buyer. 
So the text string that the buyer was reading went something like this. She writes, I should be there at 5 p.m. We'll ring the bell. My response, sounds good, see you soon, exclamation mark. You lousy jerk. What the heck is wrong with you? You jerk. I gotta say that I was horrified. It's one of those moments you wanna take that text back, but you can't. So I parked and I wrote an explanation and apologized, but imagine that minute or two when this person had to sit with this really odd text and had to figure out what to make of it. I mean, probably, I think the most prudent thing for her to do was to assume that I was unstable and that she should probably skip out on buying the bike. Luckily for me, she chose to believe my story when I explained what had happened. Well, like this woman, I think we're often in the situation of having to make the best choice based on our interpretation of the information at hand. And in a nutshell, that's the Magi's job description. They weren't actually kings like the lyrics of the Advent song say that we just sang together. They were a special kind of royal advisor, valued for their skill at interpreting the meaning of the movements of the stars and the planets. They came from a culture that believed that everything was interconnected. And when something important happened on earth, you could expect to see it reflected in the heavens. And these magi would have spent their lives studying the wisdom literature of their people, as well as studying the night sky. And for hundreds of years, Eastern kings relied on the magi to interpret their dreams and predict events that would preserve or threaten their reign. So as we read, after Jesus was born, the magi noticed something unusual in the night sky. Now, some scholars think that it might have been Jupiter and Saturn aligning three times in 7 BC. Or it could have been the movement of Halley's Comet, since comets often represent the demise of one king and the replacement with another. But whatever the Magi saw, it caused them to get their camels and their treasures together and start on a journey west. I think what makes this scene even more striking is that Matthew wrote his gospel for a Jewish audience. And the Jewish scriptures prohibited astrology. So no good Jew was looking up at the stars expecting to get some sort of revelation. And yet, here, Matthew is telling us that his readers, telling us uh, that his readers, that the Magi not only read the skies, but they read them right. So while Jesus' birth was mostly missed by his own people, 900 miles away, a caravan starts on a long journey in response to a sign in the skies. A baby has been born who is king of the Jews. Now this is the first taste of epiphany. God announces Jesus' birth in a way that was specifically intended for pagans to understand. This epiphany means that God isn't just the God of one nation for those born into certain families or cultures. No, he is, he is carrying out his plan to reconcile and redeem the whole world to himself with particular tenderness 
for the outsider. He didn't just put the star in the sky for them to worship from afar, but rather so that they would draw near to him. It was to experience the God who became flesh and blood and to go on a journey that would require their focus, perseverance, and sacrifice. And when they came to the end of that journey, Matthew says that they were filled with great joy and they could hardly contain their rejoicing. Now, I don't know about you, but I find God speaking to the Magi in this way moving. Because it means that he's a God who comes after us, who will speak any language, jump over every barrier to show up where we are at. And just as God had pursued the shepherds in the field and the magi in the east, church, he is also pursuing you and me, pursuing, speaking, inviting. God's invitation to us comes in ways that are deeply personal and particular to our story. And he is speaking all the time, all the time about who he is, about his care for us and the rest and renewal that Jesus offers us. But if we're not looking, it is easy to miss his invitations, just as it is easy to miss so much about what is good in life if we aren't intentional about being present in the moment. I'm reminded of that YouTube video where a world-class violinist performs Bach on a subway platform having played to a sold-out theater the day before. Over a thousand people come and go in this subway and only a handful stop to listen. Someone later commented, if we don't have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing the best music ever written, how many other things are we missing? Max Lucado writes that those who missed his majesty's arrival missed it not because of evil acts or malice. No, they missed it because they simply weren't looking. And to be honest, we're not going to be looking if we are not in touch with a tiny bit of our longing for what Jesus brings. If we're not aware of our own longing for wholeness, beauty, and joy, and if we've had a lot of practice of shutting down our longing and our desire, it is unlikely that we will start the journey at all. And so carving out time to sit with ourselves, to really listen, giving ourselves space to feel our want, our ache, our need, maybe a good place to begin in this new year to have eyes to see God's invitation to draw near to him. So at this point in our story, the Magi have packed provisions to be on the road for months, and they prepared gifts worthy of a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they traveled as far west as they could go before running into the Mediterranean Sea. 
And then they make the best choice they could with the information they had. They stopped where it would make sense for a king to be born. Herod's palace in Judea. But as we know, there is, there's no baby there. And unfortunately, the Magi do not appear to know of King Herod's reputation as a puppet king. Who has no qualms about cutting down anyone he feared might threaten his throne, including his own children. Caesar Augustus joked that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. So imagine you are a sort of king, tenuously holding on to your power, and a group of foreign dignitaries show up at your doorstep looking for the new king who has been born. Throw into the pot some paranoia, paranoia and some crazy, and you can imagine that this is the worst news that Herod could hear. And so it, Herod calls together the most important Jewish leaders and teachers to answer the Magi's question. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And they tell him that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So in secret, Herod asks the Magi to come back and report to him when they find the child so that he can worship him as well. So the Magi continue on their way. And again, some kind of heavenly star shows them the way to the very house in which Jesus lives. And Matthew says that they rejoice to have found him, and they fall down in worship. And they present him their costly gifts. And the last that we see of the Magi, the wise men, they are returning home by another route because God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So the plot here is pretty thick. Jesus, the toddler, is perhaps learning to walk, and we see that the great powers of the world are beginning to move in response to him, lining up for and against him. And on the one hand, we have the unlikeliest of allies, pagans who read the skies, living out what we heard in our Old Testament lesson that Kelly read in Isaiah 60. The nations shall come to your light. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praise of the Lord. But at the exact same time, evil and death get activated. The Magi's beautiful and costly responsiveness to God's invitation inadvertently tips off the wicked King Herod who sends... who sends his soldiers to snuff out the male infants living near Bethlehem. And yet we shouldn't be surprised that darkness makes its way to the very heart of the Christmas story. Because that's why Jesus came, to give us company in our sorrow and suffering, to be with us as we face darkness, and ultimately, to put his heel on the neck of evil. And so church, I think it's worth pausing for a moment and asking ourselves the question, what difference does Epiphany make for people like you and me? 
And church, I think it makes all the difference in the world. Because it's a reminder that Jesus doesn't come to fix a few things here and there, to make us a little better, to make our world a little nicer. No, his plan is that everything can and will be different. Everything can and will be made new. And as I was thinking this week about what it means for us to be made new, I was also doing a lot of cooking. My wife and I got a set of really nice knives when we were married about 14 years ago. And I got to say, they have gotten duller and duller over the years. And at this point, cutting something like a tomato is basically no different than mashing it. Now, we're aware that you're supposed to get knives sharpened, but for some reason, it has just felt like overwhelming to figure out where to go, how much it's going to cost. So we've never done it. A couple of years ago, um, I borrowed a knife sharpener from one of you, and I spent some time sharpening just one of them. But because I don't know what I'm doing, it really didn't make much of a difference. So right before Christmas, I was just hacking through some meat and finally said in disgust, that is it. We just have to get new knives. Unfortunately, uh, Rachel had a moment of clarity and said, we don't have to get new knives. We just have to get them sharpened by a professional. So finally, we did it last week. It only cost us $5 per knife and took 15 minutes. So I got to tell you, it is deeply satisfying to cook with a sharp knife that is doing what it's supposed to be doing. But of course, the purpose of a, of a, of a kitchen knife isn't just to be sharp. It is to enable us to make delicious food, ideally to share with people that we love, people that we enjoy. Some of our best memories are meals that we have shared with friends and family, some of you. And as we have ate those meals and lingered over dessert, that kitchen knife was not on our radar at all, even though it made the experience possible. And if you'll allow me to make the jump, I think that worship changes us in a similar way that being sharpened changes a knife. The excellence and utility that a knife is made for is only realized when it's regularly put in the hands of a skilled knife sharpener. And likewise, when we regularly entrust ourselves to King Jesus and we set our face towards him in worship, we are shaped into our truest selves, the most human versions of ourselves that we can be. In worship, we allow him to care for us. We submit ourselves to who he has made us to be, and we therefore become more alive and discover our true faces. As happened with the Magi, worship is the journey that makes us kingdom people who have hearts and imaginations that are big enough to step into the new heavens and the new earth. And then, and then the gifts of who we are can be laid at the foot of the king who puts it to use to further build his kingdom. A kingdom that he compares to the most decadent 
celebratory feast that we could possibly imagine. And Jesus says that he has prepared a place for us at that meal. And that what we give him come, comes back to us 10, 100, 1,000 times over. And so our call, as it was for the Magi, is to lift up our eyes from the Herods of the world, the consumption, the rat race, the fear of scarcity, and to live the life that we were made for, which is another way of saying to lift up our eyes to worship King Jesus, the one who happily gives up gold to wear a crown of thorns and gives up his life to win victory over death. So church, wherever you find yourself in the start of this new year, hopeful or weary, this story bids us with urgency, as N.T. Wright says, to come to Jesus by whatever route you can and with the best kiss that you can find. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, it is good for people like us to be reminded that in Epiphany, we were invited in to this meal, not as a second thought, but as your plan all along. So Father, even though it's hard to figure out our place in the story, we have a place in your story, at your table. And so, Father, help us to live into that, our truest selves, as we continue to put ourselves before you and worship you. And may you sharpen us, Lord. May we sharpen one another. And may we be the light that we were made to be in this world, in this broken city, in our broken neighborhood. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.